Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Mom and Dad Are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for July 7th, 2016, the What to Expect When You're Unexpectedly the First Lady edition. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm an editor at Slate. I'm the dad of Lyra, who's 11, and Harper, who is 8. And I'm Allison Benedict, also an editor at Slate and the mom of Harry, who is seven, Sam, five, and Wally, three. Hello. Hello. I can't wait to hear your interview with Michelle Obama. I know. It's going to be really amazing. <laughs> On today's show, we will talk to Dr. Katherine Steiner Adair. She's a clinical psychologist and the author of The Big Disconnect about body image and tween girls. Then... A few months ago, Eliza Reed was a writer and editor in Iceland with a mild-mannered professor husband and four kids, and then her husband decided to run for president, and then he won. So I talked to Iceland's new first lady-elect about her family's wild ride. Plus, triumphs and fails, a listener question about pro bono work that you don't agree with as a mom, and more. But first, Allison, take it away. Please like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash fighting. Last I checked... Like two hours ago, we had 4,825 likes. We'd like to get to 5,000 by the end of the summer. Right, Dan? That seems like a doable goal. That seems, that seems so doable. Yeah. So here is the way to do it. Next time you are on Facebook and pressing the like button in reaction to a picture of a friend or a coworker or a relative's kid, which you do like so many times a day. I know you do. Don't pretend like you're not on your phone right now. Uh, quickly search for our page and like ours right then and there so it's not like hanging over you, this task that you haven't done ruining your summer because you, you don't want to ruin it feeling so guilty about not having liked our page yet. So, no, What a way to ruin your summer that would be. That would be a real shame. A real, yeah, I would feel bad about that. Get it off of your to-do list. Cross it off. Get it done. Like our page. Uh, very good. Okay, let's move on to triumphs and fails. Uh, I have a qualified triumph today. Uh, it's a situation that I felt like I like I navigated it pretty well, but then it was weird and thorny enough that we are, in fact, devoting a whole segment to it on the show today. But so here is the triumph such as it is. We all went to the mall uh, the other weekend, Tyson's Corner, beautiful Tyson's Corner Mall. Uh, and after we shopped together and Harper pierced Harper's ears and we ate lunch and all the stuff we were doing, we then had two tasks which still needed to get accomplished and we needed to split them up, one parent doing one and one doing the other. So Harper wanted to get like a, a cute short haircut and Lyra needed to buy a new swimsuit. Now I'm not that knowledgeable on either issue on swimsuit fit or on girls hairstyles, but I sort of thought about it and I thought like the worst case scenario of being the parent in charge of the haircut was worse than the worst case scenario of being the parent in charge of the swimsuit. Like maybe I failed to buy a swimsuit, but at least I won't be responsible for like an unfixable hair trauma disaster as so, a one-time girl buying a swimsuit or as a woman buying a swimsuit you clearly were way off base on that hair grows yeah back. well so that's I, I did not think about it i did not think it through well enough because clearly that's a more traumatic potential event. yes uh and the triumph is that we survived it like together and but it was definitely more difficult than i anticipated um and uh in ways that i should have anticipated and it's a little dumb that i didn't but you know she's 11 she is right between kids and juniors. Uh, the kids' suits were all stupid. She didn't want them. Um, but and it, and it turns out that just like being a random dad sitting outside the dressing rooms in the Macy's Juniors department is like a great way to feel like a sleazeball. But all that was 
not that much of a problem. But the real issue was that, as do many women of all ages, uh, Lyra does not love swimsuit shopping at this point in her life. She feels really uncomfortable about her body in a way that many 11-year-olds do. And so our swimsuit shopping was punctuated with some like kind of low level panicking and some sad conversations in which I was, was like doing my best to be supportive, but also like realistic because it would feel dumb to be like, well, Lyra, it's what's inside that's important because she's smart enough to know that's not exactly quite true, really. Uh, but we did it. We bought a swimsuit. Uh, it took like an hour. It was really expensive and difficult. Uh, and then... Literally the next day, she lost the swimsuit. <laughs> How do you uh, lose tags, a swimsuit? The tags were still on it. She was like out all afternoon with the babysitter and Harper, and they went a bunch of places, including to Harper Swim Meet, and she brought the swimsuit in case she wanted to go swimming, but she didn't, and then somehow got lost. Uh, but then my triumph was that I drove out to a pool 20 miles from our house, and I found it buried in the bottom of this other pool's lost and found. So the swimsuit has been rescued, uh, and I triumphed twice, but... This whole situation was very was overall very difficult for her, and I wanted to talk more about these issues. So that is what we are spending our first segment on today. More to come. Yeah, I'm not going to even comment because I'll wait. I'll wait for our segment to, yeah. to save it up. On that. Save it up for the for when we make the big money. Okay, so so I need your help in telling me if I have a triumph or a fail. It's uh, a <laughs> no, I really I want your I want I don't want you to affirm my choices i want you to be honest uh okay. we 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 went to ohio this past weekend to visit my parents and the plan was for the whole family to be there for a few nights and then for us to leave the two older boys harry and sam with my mom and dad for the rest of the week we call this camp grammy and papa we did it last summer and we were pretty excited about it both to have a little break and for them to have like a great you know experience with their grandparents and some one-on-one time uh, Sam, however, has been acting out a lot, like a lot, a lot since preschool ended a month ago. And he was definitely on his worst behavior when we were all together there. Uh, and John and I had to make the call on whether or not we should leave him, knowing that my parents would have to deal with him in like this really difficult state or should we bring him back with us? Uh, it was pretty clear. No one said it outright, but it was pretty clear that my dad at least was hoping we take him home with us. Um, and I'm not saying that in like a angry or judgmental way. I totally get it. Uh, and my mom was probably kind of torn. And Sam had made some noises about maybe not wanting to stay because he was worried he'd be homesick. But in the end, he did want to stay. Uh, and in the end, we decided to let him. Uh, so, and it was definitely not like letting him based on his good behavior. It was just letting him because we wanted to ha- him to have this week with my parents. And if I'm being perfectly honest, letting him because we probably wanted to have this week with just Wally. So yesterday we packed up Wally, headed back to New Jersey. And I think my parents have had their hands full ever since. So my question is, was leaving a kid who I knew was going to be really difficult in a pretty major way, um, probably because he's going through a tough time transitioning away from his regular routine, leaving him with my parents, was that a triumph or a fail? And let I mean, me just you... say, of course, since then, I have not been able to enjoy any of the like kids away from home, living is easy <laughs> benefits because I'm a total wreck, worried about how right. it's going there. Right. Uh, well, that... That part is a fail. Yeah. Uh, your inability to enjoy it. But I mean, you know what my answer is. You know that I that that's a triumph. I know your answer typically would be like, dump your kids on anyone. That's a triumph. Do it. I get right, but that. Also, but, but, here, but here are other ways that, it, that I view that as the right thing to do, the right choice to make. His behavior, I'm quite certain, got markedly better as soon as you guys were on. I'm not sure that that's true. I mean, I know that that's not true. <laughs> you you know that he was being just as annoying and difficult. And I know they had a tough incident with him yesterday, at least. That's that's right. what I know. Yes. Uh, my hunch, okay, I will say that my hunch is that he will be better behaved with his brother and grandparents this week than he would be if you had taken him home against his will uh, and – made him hang out at home with you guys when what he really wanted to be doing was having the special Grammy and grandpa camp uh, that he had last year and that he remembers fondly. I just feel like in situations like this, the removal of the parents almost always makes things at least a little bit better. And the, and the excitement that a kid feels for the fun and great thing that they're about to do and are doing tends to 
if not solve some of these behavior problems, at least like ease them a lot. And, and it just seems to me that taking away this thing as a solution for him, uh, you know, acting out is not going to solve the problem in the long run. I think that in the case like this, you have this opportunity for him to have a great, major, wonderful life experience that he will hopefully remember for a really long time. Um, and you have him doing it with grandparents who love him and will forgive him even if he is bad. And it seems to me like that's like a no-lose scenario. Even if he is bad, even if he's as bad as he was, your parents still love him and are still happy to be with him even at, at bad times. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'll take that answer. Yeah. I mean, I don't just, I'm sure that your dad in some ways was like, ah, it would be a lot easier if this kid went home. But in other ways, I 100% guarantee you that your dad wanted that kid there and your mom definitely wanted that kid there. <laughs> and they are happy that he's there even when he's bad. I know I have kids who are often bad to their grandparents and their grandparents still really love them and want them want well, to see them whenever they can. Hopefully if they weren't happy, then when they listen to this podcast, they'll realize they should be. That's right. <laughs> well, honey, Dan says we should be happy. <laughs> okay, moving on. Is there anything more fraught between parents and kids than weight and body image issues? In my experience as a daughter with wonderful, well-meaning, but weight-conscious parents, no, there is not. As the New York Times recently put it in a piece arguing that parents should simply not talk about their kid's weight, a parent's comments on a daughter's weight can have repercussions for years afterward, contributing to a young woman's chronic dissatisfaction with her body, even if she's not overweight. So how should we as parents talk to our children about their bodies? How can we help them have positive body image and lead mentally and physically healthy lives while we ourselves are often self-hating about our own weight? Joining us to help answer these questions and make sure Dan and I don't do long-term damage to our children is Katherine Steiner Adair, a clinical psychologist specializing in child development and the author of many books, including her most recent, The Big Disconnect, Protecting Childhood and Family in the Digital Age. Welcome, Dr. Steiner-Adair. Thank you. So how much impact, both positive and negative, do parents have on how their kids view their bodies? I think parents have a huge impact on how kids feel about their bodies. My earliest research was first on treating eating disorders, but then since they're so difficult to treat, I moved into the area of primary prevention, which is really what parents and schools can do to help girls in particular, but boys as well develop a sense of body acceptance, a body positive, self-image, and in our media and image-based saturated culture, this is a challenge for parents, but there are a lot of things parents can do that will truly make a difference. Tell us some of those things, please, for the love of God. <laughs> okay, here we go. Never put your own body down. Don't practice body loathing in front of your kids, especially moms. Oh, I hate my butt. Oh, darling, I hope your eyes don't look like mine as we get older. Oh, my thighs. That's really important. Never put your body down. If you think those thoughts, just keep them to yourself. The second thing is never make a nasty comment about anybody else's body. Oh, look, he let himself go. What's she thinking? Wearing that. All those things. Because it says to kids, what you look like will define who you are. And it's really tricky because that's one of the few forms of social unkindness as well as comparisons and put-downs that are very condoned in our culture. So another thing is do not be a nutcase about what your kids eat. And this is really important. If you start talking about all different kinds of fats and oils and white food and carbs, you're basically practicing a form of obsessive um, vigilance. Like, buy the stuff in your house you think is healthy. Healthy eating involves kids eating birthday cake and treats. Do not model baking a cake or a delicious dessert and then not eating it yourself because you are, quote, being good. We have a tendency in our culture, and this is something that's very linked to eating disorders for girls, particularly young teenage girls through college age, where when your life feels bad or you're depressed for other reasons or, you know, whatever, life is just not giving you the happiness you want, 
it's so easy to resort to what our culture says you should do to fix it. And those two things are either go on the diet or go shopping. You know, buy that new pair of $300 jeans. You'll feel so much better, but it doesn't work. And the other thing that our culture does, for women in particular, is that we have a morality of morality where we actually think of ourselves as good or bad based on what we eat. So moms and daughters or daughters hear moms sit down at a restaurant, go out for ice cream and say, oh, no, no, I'm going to be good today. Oh, no, let's be bad. Let's be really bad. So what happens is that we decide and pass on we're good or bad people, our self-worth, our goodness, our character, who we are, based on whether we get frozen yogurt, no, nothing, or ice cream. And kids resort to that when they feel crummy because there's very little you can do when you're a teenager and you're not happy. And one of the things you can do is start to buy into the cultural myth that controlling your body will bring you happiness. And that's a slippery slope for kids. I think that's a really important point about the the distinction about making sure that you don't start categorizing your own behavior about eating in terms of goodness and badness, that that kind of like black white distinction really makes an impact on kids. Let me ask you about a specific issue that we have in our household, which is that it we it seems really important to us. It feels important to us and and it feels like a priority to really make sure that we our kids are active, that they um that we make sure to talk to them about how important eating vegetables and eating lots of different kinds of food is to us. And we don't want to be obsessive about it. And we try really hard not to be obsessive about it, but we do, you know, make rules about screen time so that kids go outside and stuff. But we also have an, an 11 year old who is already feeling nervous about these things is already very conscious of her body in ways that already make me sad and upset and she's already sort of on high alert for body shaming. She's on high alert for her parents to say something that she might think of as, oh, you're just, you just don't want me to be fat. And so what are some sort of gentle ways that we can talk about our desire for a healthy life without making her feel like we're like applying pressure all the time? Don't talk about it. Just do it. You exercise, go for walks, go on vacations that are fun. Help her find things that she loves that are physical. Be physical together. Make it fun. And just eat healthfully. Don't talk about it. The more you talk about it, the more you're driving it with anxiety. Mm -hmm. Just practice it. Be it. Live it. Be the model that you want her to be. She's 11 years old. She knows what you think. You know, if I were to interview her and say, what do your parents think a healthy way to eat is? Do you think she could answer? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. So much of our anxiety drives our behavior as parents, and the biggest thing to do is check your own anxiety. You know, don't really try not to let your worries trump your common sense. So what should a parent say to a child who complains about looking or feeling fat? And is the answer different at all, depending on the weight of the child or it's not at totally, all? It, it, it depends. And there, there are many different answers. One of the things that you want to talk about with girls that is particularly a challenge for girls is help them claim the things that they do like about themselves, help them claim their strengths. Many moons ago, uh, I was working with Carol Gilligan. We were looking at how girls grow up and develop in all sorts of ways. And one of the things we found, or I found in, in some of the work I was doing, was I could ask boys, tell me five things you feel really good about in yourself, and then tell them to the person next to you. And boys would say things like, oh, that's easy, or hey, what if I have seven? <laughs> <laughs> and girls by middle school would say, uh, that's really dumb. Or, you know, ask Lucy. She's my best friend. She'll tell you whatever you want to know about me. And they would hedge the question. They'd avoid the question. So what's going on there? Girls are taught that if they like things about themselves that are not body-related, I'm so good at math. I'm so good at reading. I'm so good at baking. I don't care. Whatever it is. If a girl says she's great at something, the culture starts to say that girls who talk about being great at stuff, it's, oh, you're bossy, you're stuck up, you're a bitch, oh, you're yeah. so full of sure. yourself. Who do you think you are? And the, one of the few areas girls are supported for either putting themselves up or down and looking for validation is their bodies. And the other reality is that it is a form of prejudice and 
misogyny, that girls are so harshly judged by their bodies. I mean, they're not nuts for being concerned about it. And you lose ground with an 11-year-old if you say, oh, honey, looks don't matter. The challenge at 11, 12, 13 is to help your girls figure out what's genetic, you know, what they have, you know, little bits of leverage. With at 11, you still have no clue, really, what your body's going to look like. But most of all, what matters most to you? And if you say it doesn't, you know, looks don't matter, they won't believe you. But you have to help them figure out how much you're going to make it matter. And, you know, what's the kind of stuff that makes you feel good? If putting your hair back in the ponytail makes you feel less messy or neat or great, go put your hair in the ponytail. Obsessing about it, yeah, that's not going to help you. So I think some of the things you want to do to help girls actually feel better about their bodies are help them feel better about the other aspects of themselves that really are blossoming as well. Help them understand your body is changing so much. You know, the average girl gains about 40 pounds between the ages of 8 and 14. And, you know, it's just such a time of awkwardness. And I would just validate that it's a time of awkwardness. And just say to her, and you know, it's even so weird. It's, your your brain doesn't stop developing until you're 25, sweetie. You're going to grow. You're going to stop. We have no idea, really, what you're going to look like. So if there's stuff you're unhappy with now, try not to get too stuck on it because it's going to change. So it's not about pretending that that weight change isn't happening. Uh, no, not yeah. at all. Yeah. Normalize it. Yeah. And get your pediatrician to normalize it, too. Say, oh, you're this is totally normal. Girls do this. You're going to get your period. You're going to get breast buds. You know, all these things are going to happen. It's really awkward. And then sometime around 14, 15, depending, I don't know, you know, their body types, but they can predict. You're just going to have a little growth spurt. Everything's going to settle. You're going to look like a young lady in a way you don't now. So you're not there yet. Don't panic. Don't panic. (laughs) And I think for the dad, one thing that's really important Back to what you're saying about exercise and stuff, you know, the more you can say things like if your daughter, whatever she does outdoorsy, soccer or tennis, whatever, say, ah, do you know how gorgeous you look to me when you are like whacking that ball, when you are running down the soccer field? You want to help them understand that their movement in their physical body, they're playing hard, they're being full of dirt from going to the beach or whatever, is beautiful to you. You want to normalize and expose the idea that that you being physical in your body, outdoors, messy, to me, gorgeous. What if I, as a parent, am trying to lose weight? I know you say don't, you know, don't talk about that in front of your kids. Don't mm-hmm. categorize food. But I think if I were to change my eating habits, my kids would notice because they notice everything. Um, so how do I frame that for my kids? Or am I not really yeah. allowed? Is it not healthy <laughs> for my kids for how, me to try to lose weight? How old are your children? How old are your children? Uh, seven, five, and three. I would say that your doctor has told you that you're supposed to eat certain foods for a while. So just lie. <laughs> well, <laughs> your doctor would tell you that. <laughs> also, you know, if you're worried about your 11 year old daughter and you're really worried, any comment to a child about weight loss should always come from a pediatrician and a nutritionist, not a parent. So you go and you talk to your pediatrician, should I be worried? You just download all your worries. Here's what I'm worried about. And then if they think there's something medically necessitated, you have them deliver that news, you get a good nutritionist, and then you never judge what they're doing. You talk about how well they're doing with their effort to do what the nutritionist said. Oh, it looks like you're having a hard time with what she told you last week. Let's just go back and tell her why this is so hard. But you never want to get into, don't eat that, don't eat that. Are you sure you want a second helping? Much better not to get caught in that kind of power struggle with your child. All right. This is really great advice. Thank you very much. This is Dr. Katherine Steiner Adair. She's a clinical psychologist. She's the author of The Big Disconnect. Thank you so much for calling in to us. You're very welcome. Happy to help. Thank you. Uh, okay, Dan, what do you think your kids notice about your eating habits? They definitely notice... I am very guilty, I realized, upon this conversation of, like, framing my food choices in terms of, oh, I'm being good or I'm being bad or, like, I'm, try- I'm trying to be good, I say. Uh, so they, I'm sure they notice that. I'm sure they notice the hell out of that. Do you think it's possible to change that? 
Yeah, I think. I mean, I I am like a grown human being. I can change the ways <laughs> I communicate about things if yeah. I'm actually thinking about it. But I, you know, it gets a totally unconscious thing that's been ingrained in me for 41 years. So yeah. I will work to change it. I think that's really, really good advice. And it's this is it's really hard. I know that this is a thing that is particularly charged between moms and daughters. But I mean, it it's an active issue for me too. You know, I. I wish I weighed less than I do um, while also feeling that it's important to be confident and happy with the body that I have. Like those are two things that are sort of diametrically opposed to each other. And I have essentially made peace with it as a 41 year old, but that's a really hard dialectic to like explain to a kid or even to, to like broach with a kid. And, but it's basically the same way I feel about my kids. Like I want, it's important to me that they be healthy and I don't want them to be, unhealthy or unhappy or out of shape or inactive, but I also want them to be happy with the people that they are, even though I recognize that that's like something of a contradiction. I also think it's not just that we want, I mean, I don't want to speak for everyone, but I think it's not just that we want our kids to be healthy. That's a nice way to put it. But I think we want, (laughs) I think most of us want to be thin and we want our kids to be thin. Like I, it's not a, a pleasant thing to say and I don't feel like great about it, but I think that's, you know, what's so hard about this is like we all, it's incredibly internalized and it's really hard not to pass it on to your kids um, because as much as you want to be totally okay with a beautiful, happy, heavy child that loves herself, I'm saying you, not you, Dan Coyce, just like you parent, it's it's hard to be. It's hard. It's hard for internalized reasons and reasons coming from outside. It's also hard because I know from my own personal experience that the fatter I get, like the more health problems I have. And I don't want to like that to happen to my kids, too. I know this is definitely an issue with boys, too. But I will say that this is one one time one in one area where I am kind of grateful not to have a girl because I think I would have done a number on a girl. I mean, I think you would have been very conscious of it. and It would have been difficult, but. I think, as you say, mothers and daughters have quite fraught uh, relationships over this. And, um, yeah, yeah, it's tough. Okay, listeners, uh, we would love to hear from you if you've struggled with these issues with your kids or have great advice or are horrified at anything we said. uh, Let us have it. Okay, on to our listener call. Every week we take a listener call and try to answer it. Got questions? Call us at 424 255-7833. We want to hear from you. But before we get to this week's call, I just want to respond to some mail we got about last week's call. You didn't actually get it, Dan, because Jessica was co-hosting and you were out. Uh, but So last week's call was from a listener who was seeking advice about whether or not to cut off ties with his Trump voting father. The listener is not a Trump supporter and his, his father is. Uh, and we had my father-in-law, who is also probably supporting Trump, come on the show to help us answer the question. And we all agreed, my father-in-law Jessica and myself, we all agreed that this caller should not become estranged from his father over politics. Uh, But after the episode, I heard from several of you who felt we glossed over the hard stuff to say some feel-good things about family. So I just – I really appreciated these notes and I just wanted to follow up to say that, well, I – still agree with everything we said last week. Uh, I don't support cutting off ties, but I do support talking about politics with your family members, stressful as this may be. So, you know, John and I argue a lot with his dad about candidates and issues, and we didn't talk about this when uh, my father-in-law came on last week, but we are often, you know, at odds over these things. He knows how we feel about a lot of his positions. We know how he feels about a lot of our positions. So I don't think it's like this thing where we all have to hug and get along and like pretend like politics isn't real. Uh, And that's not what I was trying to impart last week. So that's all. Just wanted to follow up on that. Uh, Okay. Uh, I'm on your side on this one, by the way. Like it's not, it's basically nothing is ever worth like no, no non-family trauma issue is ever worth like cutting off ties with your family, yeah. no matter how strongly you believe that Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton is the death of Western civilization. Like if it, if Donald Trump really is the death of Western civilization, you will need to cling to your family even more when the zombies come. So there's no point cutting off ties with them now. I made that argument almost just word for word last week. Okay. On to this week's call from Sarah. Hi, Allison and Dan. My name is Sarah, mom to Annabelle, eight months. 
I work at a large corporate law firm, and I had something come up recently that I would love to hear your opinion on. We had a partner who sent around um, a request for volunteers to work on a pro bono case that was described as a child custody case, um, and I thought it could be interesting, so I followed up with the partner and said that I was available. As I learned more, it turns out that this is a case where we would potentially be fighting to get a child back into a home where there had been allegations of intentional abuse. So I didn't know this in advance, and upon learning it, I obviously no longer wanted to uh, work on this case. It made me a bit queasy just thinking about it, and I think especially so because I have an eight-month-old daughter, and I'm recently back to work, and I think I'm probably a little bit more sensitive to this type of factual scenario than I would have been otherwise. So my question to you is, what should I do? Um, I want to get out of this case. I don't want to seem flaky. I don't want to seem unreliable. And I also don't want to seem like a wimp, seeing as I got back from maternity leave not that long ago. But I also, in good conscience, don't really want to work on a case where we would potentially be putting a child in um, a dangerous situation. So I'm curious to hear what you guys think I should do. Thanks so much. Bye. So uh, this seems pretty cut and dried to me. Uh, Like, it seems to me that you have the right to get the fuck out of this bad assignment that makes you feel weird. This is not a client who is paying you guys to just suck it up and be lawyers regardless of what you think about it. The point of pro bono work in a big corporate firm is to do work you believe in for people who can't otherwise afford help. So if you don't believe in the pro bono work, then don't do it. And I mean, I know that you don't want to seem like a flake, but you can go drum up some other pro bono work. You can Find work to do for an organization helping to combat child abuse or counseling troubled low-income families, but you are under no obligation to do pro bono work you don't believe in for your firm. There's plenty of other pro bono work you could be doing. I mean, that seems right to me. The only thing I would say is that it's impossible to know from um, your call, Sarah, and I, I don't wouldn't want you to divulge <laughs> too much information, but it's impossible to know the the details. And I suppose that there could be there are some scenarios where. It should be pretty hard to take a child away from his parents. Um, and so I don't know that it, it's always across the board um, the wrong thing to be helping a family get keep custody of their child, even a family who has done uh, wrong, terrible things. Uh, so I just, you know, it's, it's hard to say without knowing more information about this case. But I definitely think in like in terms of like a work question, yeah, you shouldn't have to to do this. Here's a sort of related question about this, Allison, that I am curious what you think. It strikes me that when Sarah makes her objection to this, uh, she should not say like, you know, now that I have a baby, I don't want to be involved in a case like this. Like it strikes me that no good can come from suggesting that that's the root cause of her problems with this issue. Well, you would know more about than I do about that than I do with a wife who's a lawyer. I mean, it shouldn't matter. It's fine. Well, it's just, it should be fine to say, like, but it, right. But like in any workplace, do you, I just worry that if you are setting yourself up to say either you're setting other people up to say, "Oh, she's a wimp now that she has a baby," or you're setting other people to just dismiss your concerns about the larger issues at play in this case because oh, they're just the concerns of a new mom. Like either way, it seems like that's a no-win scenario for you or for the firm. Yeah, that's probably true. And if you have like actual real moral objections to this, you probably would have before you had uh, came back from maternity leave and before you had a kid. Right. That's Don't sell yourself like, if you short. feel strongly enough about it now. I, I it's hard to imagine that you wouldn't also have felt strongly about like the introduction of children into your life doesn't magically make you necessarily like more sensitive to child abuse. People are pretty sensitive to child abuse, like regardless. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for the call, Sarah. Uh, please, listeners, call us with your questions, 424-255-7833. All right. Let's move on to our second segment. This past February, I was in Iceland researching a story about swimming pools. Uh, and one of the many lovely families I went swimming with was uh, – Uh, the family of the Canadian writer and editor Eliza Reed. Uh, She runs the Iceland Writers Retreat. I swam with her and her history professor husband, Gunni Johannesson, and their four adorable children. So imagine my surprise just a few months later when Eliza posted on Facebook that Gunni was running for president. And then imagine my surprise when just a month and a half after that, he won. I really wanted to know what it is like to suddenly and unexpectedly be the first lady of an entire country 
So I called Eliza on the phone to ask her to explain just what is going on with her family. Eliza, please explain to our listeners in 20 seconds or less how this crazy thing happened to you. Well, my husband is a mild-mannered historian, associate professor at the University of Iceland, regular commentator on Icelandic current affairs and political affairs, known within that sort of community, but not broadly known within the country. So like and, you would appear on TV to like talk about yeah, what's up. That's right. Yeah. But when the president announced in his New Year's address at the beginning of the year that he would not be seeking re-election, there were a few people who, uh, that he knew who said, oh, you should consider running, uh, putting your name in the ring. And uh, he didn't seriously consider it at all. But then the Panama Papers scandal happened. That led to the resignation of Iceland's prime minister in early April. And when that was happening and and things were changing quite considerably, my husband was called upon to do a lot of commentary on that ongoing development on the media. And that increased his public profile dramatically. And people just started encouraging him to run. And uh, people, because it's Iceland and, and your number is in the phone book, people just start calling our house and his cell phone and sending him Facebook messages. And, <laughs> you know, we'd like a, a fisherman from the north would call us or a tired police officer just saying, oh, I saw your husband on TV. And, you know, uh, everyone on my fishing boat says that he should run for president. And, and this is Iceland um, where the notion of someone with no previous political experience or elected office running for president is like not crazy, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And in, and in many senses is seen as an advantage. Um, most of the candidates who were running, there were nine candidates uh, running for president this time, and most of them didn't have political experience. Mm-hmm. And because of this sort of figurehead role as the head of state, but also this capacity of, of trying to be a unifying figure who is sort of above politics, above partisan politics, at least, is good, but not someone who is maybe seen as, as taking sides with one particular faction against another. So in your family, when it became clear that this was like a real thing that might happen, like Mm -hmm. I have never had a conversation with my spouse about her maybe running for president. Most people (laughs) probably haven't. What was that conversation like? (laughs) Oh, it was more than one conversation. It was a few conversations, of course. And generally very positive. You know, one of the major things that we thought of first was the, the children. What about right. the children? Right. And we have four children together. And we wanted to make sure that it wouldn't negatively affect them in any way. When we came to the conclusion that it would not or that any negative effects would be counteracted by more positive effects, we, we looked at that. We also looked at the likelihood of his succeeding. You know, if if we thought, okay, realistically, there's no chance he would win, then we wouldn't have done it. It wasn't, you know, a vanity exercise or anything like that. And then really, we, we thought, well, what have we got to lose? You know, we're not going to remortgage our house to be able to, you know, and end up paupers after financing some huge campaign. Because that's not the way campaigns in Iceland work. You're not spending huge amounts of money. There are strict limitations on on what the campaign can spend as a whole and also on what, as individuals, we could have contributed a lot, um, but but, um, we didn't have a lot to contribute. (laughs) But... uh, (laughs) <laughs> um, but, you know, you know, there's very strict limitations on what individual um, companies and, and people can contribute. And so we thought, well, what have we got to lose? If if he runs and he doesn't win, then he goes back to his good job. And yeah, did you, did you run it by your kids? What did Duncan think of the idea? He I mean, the youngest kids, yeah, they didn't really understand. And, and we ran it by them in the sense of we're thinking of doing this. What do you think? And they were sort of said, uh, you know, what does it mean for me? Right. <laughs> They're so young, you know, they can't read the comment section online. So I think that's the that's the key thing. Right. And, um, you know, they'll have to switch schools. That's obviously a, a big deal for kids to, to change schools, to go closer to where we'll be living. But, they, you know, kids are, are resilient and they adjust and I'm sure it'll be fine. Yeah. Uh, so now you your job in real life is that you're a writer, you're a director of the Icelandic, the Iceland Writers Retreat. Mm-hmm. Um, you've never run for office, nor has Gudni. How, so how did you adapt to like campaign life? Were you suddenly like <laughs> on the trail? Were you doing events? Yeah, we were totally on the trail. And because he announced, I mean, he announced he was running on the 5th of May and the election was on the 25th of June. So it was sort of short, a short, intensive campaign. Yeah. We were throwing in on it. I had to buy all kinds of clothes because I didn't have enough campaign clothes. And right. You're wearing high heels right now, you said, as a result I of know. this whole thing. Yeah. I'm wearing high heels and mascara. <laughs> so Iceland <laughs> seems like mellow enough that I can imagine it wouldn't be – that being thrown in the middle of this would not be like as 
crazy making and horrible as like running for office in America or being the spouse of someone running for office in America. Explain for me a little bit Mm -hmm. like the differences between a a short, intense campaign in Iceland and a Mm -hmm. long, crazy campaign in some some other country. I mean, a short, intensive campaign. I was pretty exhausted at the end of this campaign, and I cannot imagine what it's like to go for a longer, longer period of time. Our children still, you know, walk to school, went to and from school by themselves as usual. Mm -hmm. No problems at all. Uh, My parents were over here to help babysit them. I guess that was the biggest change is that we were generally gone from about uh, 7 or 7.30 in the morning until midnight. And obviously then we had a whole team of people who were scheduling events for us. So in some senses, there was a bit of luxury because, you know, when you're self-employed or doing things, you're you're scheduling all your own time as well. This was just, we'd get an email, okay, today you go here and then you go there and then you do this. <laughs> and, and we just followed that. And yeah. um, a lot of handshakes, uh, got used to the, I, I wouldn't want to call it sort of a stump speech, but obviously there was a sort of a general discussion that would be had. Um, I would always do a bit of talking as well. And, you know, we traveled all around the country, almost, we visited not all, but most of the towns and communities around the country. So we had a rental car and, you know, it was like a little romantic road trip, but with a photographer. <laughs> <laughs> as all romantic road trips should have to capture the magic. Indeed, indeed. Um, I remember when we first met, you told me a, some, a funny story about uh, Gudni and how polite and shy and reserved he mm-hmm. is, which is to say he's very traditionally Icelandic. He is not a person who like talks to strangers typically. When you're mm-hmm. running for president in Iceland, does that change? Do you have to get good at like kissing babies and stuff or is it different? Yeah. You do, but it doesn't sort of seem disingenuous for some reason. Uh-huh. Um, he, he did hold babies and pose for pictures with them. But one of the things that he often said in meetings, um, at the beginning, he thought, you know, meeting people and making small talk a lot is going to tire me out. Right. But in the end, he loved that part. Really? And I could see that because I was with him. And he said that in speeches that it surprised himself that his favorite part of the campaigning was going out and meeting people and going into old age homes and and talking to people there and and sharing his ideas and having I guess what you would call sort of town hall meetings and all right. of these communities where people could go and and he would do a speech and answer questions. You know, I could tell that he much preferred that say to the televised debates with all the other candidates. And that was great because that is a is a really vital part of the campaign is meeting people and it's a vital part of the role of the president is to travel a lot within the country and to meet people and stay in touch with people and so he will do that very well. That's really interesting. Uh, and it's interesting to think also your new life as a public figure is presumably weird, but Iceland is also a country where the impression I got while I was there is that everyone is kind of a public figure in the sense that everyone already knows you. Everyone knows your people. They know who your dad is and who your mom is and where you come from. Mm-hmm. And so it seems like it's maybe only a slight expansion of that sort of small towniness of the entire country already. Yeah. And I mean, that's an interesting point, too, because the people who don't know your people, that was always a question, especially in the countryside, that we were asked, who are your people? Right. And part of the speech is always to say, you know, my mother was born in this part and her parents did this and her parents were from these people and my father was from this part. And to sort of give people a bit of context of where everybody was from. And that, yeah, is very, is very important. Were people cool that you're Canadian? Yes, I All didn't right. experience. I don't read the comment section either, but <laughs> I, I didn't experience any any negative reaction to the fact that I'm foreign born and raised. And I think also people see, you know, I spoke Icelandic the whole time and right. did all my, uh, I don't know if you'd call them speeches, but every time I spoke during the campaign, of course, I spoke in Icelandic and, and people can see that, you know, I've lived here for a number of years and I'm part of the society as well, of course. Right, right. Uh, so when does your term as first lady begin? And do you guys actually like move into like the White House of Iceland? We do. <laughs> August the 1st in like a month uh-huh. <laughs> in comma, like comma a month. Yeah. Yeah. There's a big inauguration, of course. Um, it's a very ceremonial day. And I don't know if we'll actually move into the presidential residence that exact day, but, but thereabouts, I think they're going to repaint or something. Where is the presidential residence? It is in Alftanes where we oh. took it. Thing. That oh, that's amazing. Be- You'll be so close to that great pool. Yeah, that's, that's going to be our local pool. That's very exciting. <laughs> uh, that I still remember driving into that town. The the 
the like the tower of the water slide is the tallest thing in town. It's like three yeah. stories high. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, uh, that's our, that, I know that I can tell that's the high point of the interview for you. Yeah. Know? Oh yeah, <laughs> absolutely. That's what I care about the most. Uh, <laughs> all right. So tell me the funniest thing so far that has happened uh, in your role as first lady elect. I don't know if there's a f- the word for it is funny. There's been innumerable surreal moments, obviously. Mm-hmm. And I think as first lady elect, i.e. since the election last Saturday, that has got to be our overnight trip to Nice, France for the football, the soccer match against England. Yeah. Which now, we you had, did. did you have any intention of going to that match other than all of a sudden you got to go because you're first lady elect? Well, no, we didn't get to go. I mean, uh, well, I shouldn't say that. I, I, I suspect it was easier for us to get tickets because of that, but we got didn't it. go in any official capacity. We just bought our own airline tickets and did everything got it you know ourselves but because he is the president elect and first lady elect um the french officials you know wanted to be aware that we were going and so you know we were met at the airport by a police convoy <laughs> and taken there to our you know generic average found on tripadvisor hotel in nice <laughs> Where the owners of the hotel were rather <laughs> surprised that we pulled up in this convoy <laughs> and, and promptly upgraded us to a suite. <laughs> so nice. I'd recommend that. Nice. Welcome to your crazy new life. Does being first lady mean you have to like be first lady 24 hours or do you get to keep your like actual job? I will still do the Iceland Writers Retreat. Uh-huh. And I have to kind of mind what I do. Like I can't proofread an annual report for a company. Oh, yeah. I guess not. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think the things that would, would, by common sense, say, oh, that's not something that really you could do as first lady. I can't do those things. <laughs> There's no particular rule book. Yeah, that's really interesting. I know, like I was looking, I just noticed that Goodney is still up as a tour guide on the Iceland Writers Retreat webpage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have to, we're, we're updating that website. So, um, and, and, you know, it won't say organized by the first lady of Iceland or anything right. like that. Right. Um, so we'll, we'll keep those kind of, kind of separate. All right. Well, thank you for talking to me. Thank you again for all the help you gave me in February. You really helped make that piece great. Uh, And I hope we stay in touch because I want to hear all about this epic journey as it goes along. Okay. On to recommendations. All right. I will go first with recommendations today. I have a great recommendation, a movie uh, that is out in theaters now in a few theaters nationwide and spreading everywhere over the next few weeks. Uh, It is a movie from New Zealand called Hunt for the Wilder People. It's directed by Taika Waititi, who's a New Zealand director who uh, is best known for directing several episodes of Flight of the Concords. It is a extremely funny, slightly heartwarming, but not at all sappy story of a kid from the city, uh, from Auckland, so the city as far as New Zealand goes, who has been through multiple foster homes and ends up in the care of a very weird couple who lives out on the edge of the bush. Uh, And Sam Neill plays the dad of this uh, family. Sam Neill, who you may remember from the piano and Jurassic Park and many other movies. And he and the kid end up on this insane adventure out in the bush, uh, being hunted down by the authorities. It's like a great old school adventure story of the type that I feel like could have been printed in a a boys magazine from 1958, except for that this character, the center of it, this uh, kid at the middle of it, Ricky played by a boy named Julian Dennison is foul mouthed and angry and lazy and a huge jerk. And the result of his conflict with Sam Neill's character and with the natural world as he experiences it for the first time is really funny and great. My kids totally love this movie. I think it would be a fantastic movie for any adventuresome kid, maybe age nine or higher, as long as you don't care about some swears. Uh, and it's a great uh, entry into this sort of off-kilter brand of New Zealand comedy that I associate for older kids with Flight of the Concords and other movies that Taika Waititi has directed, like uh, um, What We Do in the Shadows. But it's really great. And my kids loved it, and I think your kids will too. Uh, so this is not the point of your recommendation, but in talking about the if, as long as you're okay with your kids hearing some swears, I had been sort of going off of something you said a long time ago in the podcast, which is like you're basically fine with your kids swearing as long as they know not to swear outside of the house. And we've been showing them plenty of movies with swears and they love the swears. And that's always like Harry's favorite part of anything. Like when he tells me about camp, it's just about like that the counselor said, you know, the F word or whatever. 
Uh, and he and he's, you know, thrilled by it. But lately they've been like really swearing a lot, like a lot, like all the time in the house. And it's starting to bother me. Uh, and I'm sort of I don't know whether I can turn this ship around or I just have to like kiss a goodbye and say I did this or Dan, I mean, Dan did this. Your lasting Dan impact on our family is that my five year old says, God damn it, like all the time. Surely that comes from John. <laughs> I my, my hunch is that. Within a few months, they will they will like cease to be funny and exciting to them to do it around the house, and they'll stop. If not, then at some point you can be like, look, the whole point of these words is that they have power because you use them when you really need them, not because you just say them all the time. That right. just makes you annoying. Right. Okay. All right. Uh, how can how can listeners see this movie? Listeners can see this movie by going to your local movie theater and seeing it. Oh, It'll really? be on demand, I'm sure, within the next few months but right now it's in theaters everywhere okay okay great uh so i want to recommend the book tad and dad by david ezra stein do you have this book i don't um uh david ezra stein is author of many great children's books including another cook benedict household favorite called interrupting chicken uh but the reason i want to suggest this one is that well it's a great book for all families it seems especially great for single dads to read to their young kids i mean i wouldn't know and i've only read it to to wally but um that's how it strikes me. It's about Tad the da- the tadpole and his dad the frog, uh, who's like super proud. He's just so proud of his son. Everything his son learns to do, he's like, you know, great job, son. But at night, uh, dad needs a little space from his son. There's no mom in this book. It's just Tad and dad. Uh, and we re- I read this one a lot to Wally. And every time that Tad and dad get in a little fight at the end, and as the book says, Tad swims away from his dad for the first time ever, I get choked up. Uh, it's a very sweet and lovely book. Uh, but again, I think it would be really great for single dads or really probably any single parent to read at bedtime to their young kids. That sounds really great. I will definitely check it out. All right. Thank you. That is our show. Please like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. And also, Tell your friends to listen. Uh, The more friends you tell, the more likes we get, the closer we get to 5,000. A little known fact, if we get to 5,000 likes on Facebook, our coworkers have to give us 5,000 individual high fives. Mom and Dad are Fighting as part of the Panoply Network. See our full roster of shows at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Thank you very much to our guests today, Dr. Catherine Steiner-Adair, First Lady-Elect of Iceland, Eliza Reed, and Heidi Strom-Moon. Thanks to our producer, Ann Hepperman, to Steve Lichtai, the executive producer of Slade Podcasts, and to Andy Bowers, the grand poobah of Panoply. And thank you, Allison. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.